Well, this morning we have an ordination service for seven new deacons here at Ashley River Baptist Church, uh, six men, one lady. And as we do this, we're going to really walk through a couple texts of Scripture uh, briefly in preparation for that moment. As we look at the idea of servant leaders in Scripture, we're going to see this central idea in the text that deacons serve like Jesus so pastors can shepherd like Jesus. Deacons serve like Jesus so pastors can shepherd like Jesus. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, you'll see what we're talking about here. The early church has just begun. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has preached a powerful sermon. The Spirit shows up in a remarkable way. People are speaking languages they've never known before. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, and 3,000 people are saved in a day as a result of one sermon. It's a remarkable day. On this day, the church goes from just over 100 members to 3,120 members in this church. Immediately, the church encounters problems, but we see kind of two things going along in parallel here. We see the work of the Spirit of God along with these logistical issues that come up. So by chapters 3 and 4, the church is growing, there are mighty miracles being done, but at the same time, there's persecution. The apostles are thrown into prison for preaching the word, but they continue preaching with courage. By chapter 5, we come to a real problem in the church. Two people, I don't know, filled with their self-importance, Ananias and Sapphira, give a significant offering to the church, but they lie about it. And by this time, God's Spirit intervenes in the life of the church in a very sobering way, as Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for their sin. In spite of all of this opposition, the church continues to grow. But what happens in this early church is that you have different groups of people. You've got kind of the Jewish Jews, uh, the, the old school Ashley River, if you will, the, the, the long-term, you know, the people who are there by birth, and you got all these new people coming in. They're what uh, here are called Hellenists, or Greek-speaking Jews, and so you've got two different cultures in this church. You've got the old established culture, people who've been there a long time, and then you've got this new culture. And what happens is these cultures come into conflict, and the place where this intersects is in a position of need. Because in this congregation of thousands of people, there are a bunch of widows, There are Jewish-speaking widows, Hebrew-speaking widows, and then there are the the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking widows. Now, both of these groups are Jews who have come to faith in Christ. But one set set of of people, they're they're Jewish in their culture, and the other set, they're they're Greek or or kind of foreign in their culture. They're sort of the immigrants. So what has happened over time is as different people invaded Israel, they, they would take the Israelites and they'd scatter them out through persecution. And then over time, these people have matriculated back in. So their heritage is Jewish, but they're immigrants. They've come home, and so they're here, and they're all, they all exist in one church. And in this moment, what happens is there are all these widows that need care. And so every day, the church here is marked by remarkable generosity. We see that in chapters 4 and 5, and here in chapter 6, every day they're meeting the needs of these widows. But as they come, there's a group that says they're being neglected. They come, and they're not getting what they need. That's the, the Greek-speaking Jews. That's the, the immigrants. They're coming and they're saying, hey, we're not getting the food we need. So in Acts chapter 6, we encounter this problem. Let's see what the church does to address this. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, 
pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This morning, we're going to spend some time briefly in two passages, this one in Acts chapter 6 and also in 1 Timothy 3, the passage that Earl read just a few minutes ago. And in doing this, we're going to ask two basic questions. The first is, why in the world does a church have deacons? And the second is, then what does a deacon look like? God's Word addresses both of these questions, and we're going to see this as we walk through this. Really what we see in this first church is that the reason we have deacons is that there is a problem. Deacons, kind of in their inception, are problem solvers. There's a problem, there's a need not being met in verse 1. The basic problem in this church is it's growing too quickly. So they've got more people than they can actually minister to coming in their doors. It's like, imagine that you have, I don't know, systems and relationships set up to minister to 100 people, and then you have 3,000 people. Those are different logistical challenges. And so in this, this church, they don't really know how to address this. The disciples are increasing in number. On the list of problems, this is a good problem. It's like not having enough parking or enough seats, but it's still a problem. But physical problems often lead to spiritual disunity. I don't know, when it's too cold or it's too hot or when someone's in your seat, it can lead to spiritual conflict. In this case, the concern is cultural as well as logistical. So a complaint by the Hellenists arise against the Hebrews. Now, both of these start with H, but they're very different groups of people. Hellenists, they're those Greek-speaking Jews that we were talking about a a moment ago. And the Hebrews are the Hebrew of Hebrews. They're the old school, long-term members of this Jerusalem church. Well, these Jews by blood, but Greek by culture and language, come and they have their own synagogues. Now, you can imagine why this would be, because if you go to synagogue and you don't understand the Hebrew language, it doesn't do you any good. So they've got separate synagogues, separate cultures, separate worship services, and now they've come together as one because they've come to faith in Christ and there's one church, one body here. This new church, the gospel, bridges these cultural barriers, these these different ethnic and, and cultural and language barriers, and they come together in one church. One of the remarkable things about this church is its generosity. Now, here we get a little critical of them because they aren't meeting the needs, but but truthfully, these people are just giving with radical generosity. Can you imagine a church where literally to help the members of your church survive, other people in your church have to bring food every day to those people? That's what's going on here. This is a major challenge. But these, this one group of widows is being neglected, and it leads to not only conflict in the church, but some sort of class conflict between the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews. So how then does the church choose to address this? Well, there are all kinds of theories about how churches grow, but verse 2 tells us where the growth of the church comes from. The apostles say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Note that the ministers of the Word shouldn't step away from the ministry of the Word because the Word gives life to the church. 
Now, if your life is like mine, it doesn't take much for practical needs to overtake, you know, what's most important. It's kind of like the tyranny of the urgent. What must be done now can overtake what's truly important. And it's here in this moment that we have the introduction of the idea of deacon. They talk about serving tables, and this word serve tables is to deacon tables. It's not that the apostles are above this work. I mean, we see Paul later on. I mean, he's making tents to make a living. It's not that. It's literally that there is too much to do. They can't give themselves and succeed in all of these things. And in the life of the church, the word of God and prayer is how the spirit of God works. So what we see here is you cannot understand the office of deacon apart from the office of the ministers of the word. Or you might say this way, you can't understand deacons and pastors separately. They go hand in hand. They, they work one alongside the other. How does a church grow? God gives life to the church of God by the power of the spirit of God as faithful ministers preach the word of God. That's how the church grows. The essence of a pastor's job is to lead a congregation with the word. And we see this happening throughout the New Testament as teams of pastors work together, sometimes called a plurality of pastors, to lead a congregation. And so you have it like this. First Peter 2 tells us that we are a royal nation, a, royal, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. In other words, we believe we each have access to God. You don't need me or anyone else to go to God for you. And yet at the same time, what we see in the life of the church is that a church exists under the lordship of Christ. But Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ gives to his church gifts in the form of pastors, shepherds, teachers. And it's, it's these shepherd teachers' job then to lead that as members of that congregation, but it's their job to lead. And what we see here in Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy 3 is that alongside those shepherd teachers, God gives servant leaders to the church to serve alongside them, and they serve hand in hand to lead and guide a church. The ministers of the word shepherd the, shepherd the congregation with the word, and the servant leaders care for practical needs to assist in that ministry. So the growth of the church happens because of the faithful preaching of the word. And if that's true, you can't stop, you can't cut off your growth source to, to care for needs, because if you do that, you'll, you'll shrivel up and you'll die. So somehow you have to be able to care for logistical, practical challenges, as well as keep the life flow of the Word of God coming to a congregation. So the apostles, being spirit-inspired geniuses, propose a solution. Hey, y'all figure this out. Choose seven men who have solid Christian reputations, people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom, Bring them back to us, and then we'll set them apart for this work. And the point of this, verse 4 tells us, is to free up these ministers of the word for, for their ministry of the word and prayer. And these two things go hand in hand. Well, you can imagine coming into this moment, there's significant conflict. You know, they probably just had a business meeting where everyone was standing up and yelling about who's getting food and who's not. And someone comes up with a good idea. Hey, let, let's work this out together. And so in this meeting, they propose a solution, and verse 5 tells us, everyone is pleased. Now, can you imagine that? People are literally hungry, they propose a solution, and everyone's happy about it. That's like a win-win-win. Everyone wins in this case. So they bring them back, pray over them, and the apostles lead the entire church in this process. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. So then the congregation participates in this moment. They affirm and set aside these men to function as servant leaders in the church, what happens as a result, the church grows in health and number. 
physical problems that led to spiritual disunity. And yet, very pragmatic, very simple, feeding someone food who needs food leads to a remarkable impact on the health of this church. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So why does the church grow? Because God blesses the ministry of his word, and people are coming to faith in Christ. But that is not possible apart from the ministry of these deacons. These deacons step in and serve in the life of the church. So what is it that deacons do? Deacons meet practical needs in a way that allows the gospel to advance and the peaceful unity of the church to flourish. So the combination of these deacons and these ministers of the word provides fertile ground in which the gospel can grow. Now, my uh, brother was here this weekend, and we were spending some time working on my car this weekend. I say we, I was handing him tools. He's pretty good at it. I'm pretty bad at it. But we're working on this, and, and if you know anything about the, uh, the engine of a car, it's got different moving parts, gears in it. Well, what is it that, that lubricates that and allows those, those, those pieces to, to move together in a seamless way? It's oil, motor oil. And you know, if your car, if your engine runs out of oil, what happens? It's done. It's burnt up, right. Your car is dead in the water. Now, a quart of oil might just cost you, I don't know, a handful of dollars. But it's really, really important. And if you don't have it, the engine will seize and you will die. Well, deacons are the servant leaders who are like the lubricating oil on the life of the church. They serve in a way that allows the church to flourish and grow. It brings peace and unity and harmony. It allows those, those different pieces uh, to move together. This weekend, uh, I saw a deacon in action. Now, it wasn't here at the church. It wasn't necessarily a, a spiritual gift. This person was being paid to do this. But uh, yesterday, as, as you all know, we had a couple of uh, memorial services here at the church this weekend, and so I was kind of in and out all day. Well, I was, I think it was the second one, I'm not sure, but uh, Liz texted me. She, she said, hey, I need you to pick up some uh, chips and some salsa on your way home. We're having this chicken tortilla soup, and you need to pick this up. I said, okay. So I go to Harris Teeter next door here, and I go to get this, and uh, you know, Saturday, mid-morning, the worst time to be at the grocery store. There are lines everywhere, and so I go to the, uh, the self-service check out, and I'm there checking out, and I'm like, ding, ding. I'm feeling pretty good about myself, you know, I'm rolling through it. I found everything I needed without, you know, anyone telling me directions, and, and I'm checking out here, and I um, have, you know, my chips bagged, and then I, and I, I put, you know, salsa, it's in a little glass, couple, couple of glass jars, and the way this works, you know, it's like, you can buy two and get a discount, so I bought a couple, and uh, so I'm there, I've got them, I've got them in, the, in the bag, and I go to pick up the bag, and this bag was one of a series of bags that we found out after this. It was like someone had taken a razor blade and just sliced the back of them. So I picked this up and boom, glass, salsa everywhere. You know, my, my pants, my shoes, all over the floor. And so I'm immediately embarrassed because there are like six of these stations here. And then this kindest lady, I don't even know her name. Now she's paid to be there, but she comes up and she says, I'm so sorry about that. You go get your, uh, you get, and so I go, I go literally, I, they never scanned them. I grabbed two other jars. She's cleaning it up. She's like, I hope you're not doing, I'm like, no, I'm fine. I just went out of here at this point. I don't want anyone cleaning up my shoes or I just want to get out of here. I'm embarrassed. And so I'm like, I'm going to grab this stuff and go. And literally she did everything she could. And then she goes and she's like realizing that like there are half a dozen of these bags in a row and they're all the same. It was like, I don't know if the machine had cut them or what. So we go to the other side. She gets me a couple bags. She gets me out the door. She did everything she could to make that terrible situation as easy as possible. 
And I thought, what a picture of someone just coming alongside and serving and really lubricating a very awkward situation in a way that just practically says, here, let me help you out the door. And that's really what deacons do. They come alongside and they, and they meet needs in a way that allows, I don't know, difficult situations to, to work smoothly together. So this brings us to our second question then. What do deacons look like? Now, by this, I don't mean, you know, we can put pictures on the screen. That's not what I mean. I mean, like, scripturally, what, you know, what, what's the character of a deacon? We have two offices outlined in scripture in the life of the church. We have pastors and you have deacons. Uh, in, in the New Testament, you have three words for the office of pastor. You have the word pastor. Normally, it's actually a verb to shepherd, like to take, take care of sheep. You have the word elder, which is the most common word for pastor. And then you have the word overseer, or sometimes it's called a bishop. Those are three words describing the office of, of leaders in the church. You have another office in, in Scripture, and that's, that's the office of deacon. Now, this is very complex. You have one word describing the office of deacon. It's the word deacon. So if you can get that word, then, then you see this. And so you really just have these two. You have three for one, but then you have deacon for deacon, and deacon just means servant. These character qualities are outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So what are the character qualities that we should look for in a deacon? The bottom line is that deacons should be men or women of spiritual maturity. So we have the first church, seven men set aside, but by the time we get to Romans chapter 16, we see this church setting aside a woman for this, and we also see uh, character qualities for women outlined in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The first characteristic is that deacons are Christ-like believers. We see this in Acts chapter 6 verse 3 and also 1 Timothy 3 verses 8 through 13. If you were to read through the list of characteristics of both pastors and deacons, what you would see quickly is that the thing that jumps out is not that these have to be the most gifted people. It's not that they're the most talented people. It's character over gifting. In fact, the only thing that relates to gifting in any of this is that pastors must be able to teach. If you can't teach, you can't be a pastor. But in other words, it's more important that the leaders of a church model faithful Christian living than that they be the most dynamic or most charismatic people. Now imagine with me this morning, and, and we're not going to take me because this, it wouldn't help us, but let's, I don't know, pretend Sheila Thompson is here. And we ask her to draw something for us, and we give her a picture of a horse, and we ask her to draw a dog. Well, you give her a model, and, and what she produces looks like that model. And so if you want, I don't know, a sculpture or a painting or a drawing of a dog, you should give her a picture of what? A dog. If you want a picture of a horse, you give her a picture of a horse. And, and the point is that, that deacons are essentially pictures or models of what it looks like to walk with Christ. Paul says it this way. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying, here's the model. If you look like this model, then you'll resemble the original. And deacons are to model their lives after Christ so that they resemble Christ. And what we do is, in, in other words, we want to say, if, if you want to know what it looks like to walk with Jesus, look at that person. If you want to know what it looks like in a struggling, fallen, broken world to try as best you can to lead your family, to serve your church, to reach your community, look at these people. This is true for pastors, and this is true for deacons as well. People learn who Jesus is by spending time with people that look like Jesus by spending time with people that walk with Christ. Deacons are Christ-like believers, and they're also believable in this. In other words, there's a whole class of people that walk around saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, 
Yet there's this gap between what they say and what they do. There's this gap between what they claim to be true and what they live out. I heard one pastor say that the qualifications for leaders in this church are remarkable in that they're unremarkable. Now, there's quite a list of things. Don't get drunk. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't be greedy. But there's not a single one of these that's not also asked of every member of the church. Don't get drunk. Yep, that's for all of us. Don't be greedy. Yep, that's for all of us. Don't gossip. Yep, they're not unique. They're just supposed to be characteristic of these people. Pastors and deacons should live lives that are consistent with what they say that they believe. In other words, if there's a disconnect, someone was teasing me this morning because, uh, you know, didn't have a tie on. If you want to see a tie, you can come to a funeral. That's when I wear a tie. But, uh, but in other words, there ought not to be a difference between who we are when we dress up and look nice on Sunday morning and the life we live on Monday morning at work or on Friday afternoon at the golf course or Tuesday evening with our family. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't sin along the way or fall short because God's Word tells us we have all fallen short of God's glory. It's not about perfection, but it is about a life that's just, frankly, doing its best, like a righteous man, falling down seven times and getting up again and getting up and just seeking to live a real life before the Lord in a way that shows what it looks like to faithfully walk with Jesus, even when life is hard. Now, no one meets these qualifications perfectly. The point isn't that we're perfect. The point is that we're faithful models are trying to be examples of what it looks like to walk with Christ. So if you want to look like what it, if you want to know what it looks like to walk with Jesus, you can look at these people. These people are also faithful in their family commitments. So there's this public facing integrity, but people know about you. But it's also vital that deacons be faithful in their family life. 1 Timothy 3.12 says that deacons must be the husband of one wife, managing children and households well. Verse 11, they are faithful in all things. In other words, if your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids know that you're terrible to be around, Paul's saying that ought not to be the case. You're a one-woman man. You ought to be committed in your relationships, particularly in your family relationships. Flirtation, Pornography, sinful sexual pursuits ought not to have any foothold in our lives. Deacons are also grounded in the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.9 tells us that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and they hold firmly to that. They know the good news that Jesus is the only Savior, and that he'll save anyone who comes to him in faith. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives us the the perfect picture of a perfect deacon, the perfect servant. His crucifixion is coming. Jesus is about to die, and in this moment, he gathers with his disciples around the table, and he offers to do something kind of remarkable for them. He asks them to wash their feet. Now, this this is shocking, because ordinary people don't wash other people's feet. This is a task reserved for the lowest servants in the house. Because you see, feet are gross. Now, your feet might be gross, but these feet are really gross. 
They're not wearing shoes and socks. They don't have pedicurists. They're walking around on dirty streets where donkeys, oxen, and everything else is walking around and dropping their stuff. You walk in a house and your feet are filthy, stinky. And when you get there, the lowest servant is responsible to wash your feet so you can be clean walking around this person's home. And in this moment, Jesus bends down and asks his disciples to allow him to wash their feet. This is shocking. In fact, it's such a disgusting task that Jesus' disciples are disgusted that he would want to do this. And Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. You see, Peter wants Jesus to be king, and kings don't wash feet. Peter wants Jesus to be conquering hero, and heroes don't wash feet. And yet then Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, if you can't handle a leader who's a servant like this, you cannot be my disciple. It's a remarkable moment. Well, Peter's an idiot, but he's not that big of an idiot. And so he then replies, Okay, if that's how it is, Lord, not my feet only, but wash all of me. If it's foot washing time, I'm all in. Wash all of me, Lord. It's a remarkable moment. And yet Philippians chapter 2 tells us it's not their most remarkable moment of service in Christ's life. You see, this moment, this foot washing moment, is a small picture of the step that Jesus is about to take. Philippians 2 tells us that that Jesus Christ, the eternal God, the creator of the universe who spoke all things into being, humbled himself to become like us, to become a human being who got tired, got weak, who never sinned, but experienced discouragement, who experienced daily emotion. And yet at the end of his life, what, what Paul says is that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. Remember the foot washing reserved for only the lowest servants. And crucifixion is reserved only for the lowest criminals. In the life of Christ, Christ is constantly placing himself in positions of service. The one who is Lord of all is placing himself below all. The one who deserves to pronounce judgment is placing himself under judgment. The one who has the right to declare punishment is is bearing our punishment. Isaiah 53 tells us that in this moment when Jesus bears our punishment, his his face is so broken, so marred, so bloody that you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. He looks like a bloody piece of meat. And Philippians 2 tells us that in this moment when Christ placed himself under the judgment of God in the place of sinners, in love for those sinners, this is the moment of chief service. This is the chief deacon moment in Jesus' life. And what it means is that Jesus provides salvation for all. That anyone who comes to God in faith can be saved. And it's Jesus' servant heart. It's his servant leadership that does this. John chapter 10. Jesus links this servant, this deacon, with his shepherding, caring ministry. He says, I am the good shepherd, the good pastor. And how do you know who the good shepherd is? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Jesus is the perfect deacon. Jesus is the perfect shepherd. And in joining these two ministries, he gives his life for the sheep so that anyone who comes to God in faith will be saved from their sin. If you're here without Christ this morning, you have no hope but to run to this shepherd, to run to this servant and cry out to him, Jesus, would you save me? Would you turn from your sin and trust him? Before we close this morning, I want to think just for a moment longer about Jesus' model of servant leadership, John chapter 13. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. By the end of this chapter, Judas leaves to betray Jesus. Jesus has predicted in this moment that Peter will deny him. Now think about this. You've got a traitor. You've got a cowardly denial. And in this moment of conflict, brokenness, there's no more broken point in the life and ministry of the disciples than this moment. And Jesus gives what he calls a new commandment. He says, love one another. And he says, love one another just as I have loved you, just as I have washed your feet, just as I will give my life for you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's the result? Think back now. What's the result of the deacon's ministry in Acts chapter 6? The number of disciples multiplies greatly. Many priests become obedient to the faith. You see, the shepherds minister the word faithfully, the deacons serve faithfully, and many people come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they're loving each other. And when people see that lived out, what happens is the message of God's love that they hear, they can see it visibly lived out as people love and serve each other. The gospel is the words of life, but it's our lives of love that make the gospel compelling. Does our life as a church and does your life as a Christian make the good news of Jesus compelling to those who don't know him? Let's take a moment now, respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to pray and then I'll close us in prayer in just a moment. Would you pray and talk to God now?